0: Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is episode number 11. They called me mad, Pestalozzi and Montessori. You've likely heard the saying, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. It's been widely attributed to Mohandas Gandhi, although it's actually from a speech by Amalgamated Clothing Workers Union leader Nicholas Klein in 1914. His actual quotation, if you're curious, is, First they ignore you, then they ridicule you, then they attack you and want to burn you, and then they build monuments to you. The slogan's been quoted by many public figures over the years, including, recently, both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And if it has that kind of broad applicability, then I have no problem extending it to apply to several key figures in the formation of our modern practices and structures of formal schooling. In this episode, number two in what I'm currently thinking of as a four-part history series, we'll be looking at two of those figures, Johann Heinrich Pestalozzi and Maria Montessori. Each of these two educators, in their own way, were ridiculed and attacked for what was at the time their radical beliefs, and now there are few figures more revered in schools of education. Of these two folks who lived, shall we say, hard-knocks lives, Pestalozzi in particular really couldn't catch a break. The man's life reads like a protagonist in a Thomas Hardy novel. But let's begin. Johann Heinrich Pestalozzi was born on January 12, 1746, in Zurich, Switzerland, and although he would spend most of his life in financial distress of some sort or other, he started out in a decently well-off family. His father was a respected surgeon, but his death during Pestalozzi's childhood dramatically disrupted the family's finances. It was on visits to his grandfather, a clergyman, that Pestalozzi would discover his lifelong passion and dream of helping underprivileged peasant children to escape a dismal life of factory work through the uplifting potential of education. Yes, before Stand and Deliver, Lean on Me, Dangerous Minds, or Freedom Riders, Pestalozzi was the original starry-eyed crusading teacher, out to rescue the children of the poor. Pestalozzi was a huge fan of philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, particularly Rousseau's notion of children as blank slates who learned best in a state of nature. Becoming an educator wasn't Pestalozzi's first plan, or his second, or even his third. Originally, Pestalozzi wanted to enter politics, but the Swiss government at the time really had a hate-on for his hero Rousseau, and Pestalozzi's open admiration of that philosopher basically short-circuited any ambitions he had to hold public office. I guess it would be like carrying your copy of Marx's Das Kapital around 1950s America and wondering why you're not getting elected to city council. Pestalozzi actually got jailed at one point because the police confused him with a different radical who wrote an incendiary pamphlet of some sort. He was released when the courts realized their error, but the story is that he supposedly was forced to pay for the wood needed to burn the pamphlet in public. That part is likely apocryphal, but it does make for a great story. So if you can't become a political leader, the next logical step is to become... a farmer? Well, if you're Pestalozzi, yeah. He bought a 25-hectare patch of neglected river land called the Neuhof, tried to use it as a base to create new and improved methods of agriculture, and failed miserably. He got into debt, had to basically empty his mother's savings, not great. He then tried to use it for cattle breeding, and failed miserably he then tried to use it for cotton and wool processing and well you can guess what happened next pestalozzi finally decides to use the land to house impoverished children and he teaches them spinning and weaving skills to help them become self-supporting and this project fails miserably but importantly pestalozzi learns a great deal about how children learn from observing and working with them now at least he wasn't alone at this point Pestalozzi's social circle of intellectuals included a wealthy friend who offered his parlor as a space to hold meetings for philosophical discussions, and here's where Pestalozzi fell in love with that friend's sister, Anna Schultes. Needless to say, Anna's parents were not too psyched about the prospect of their daughter marrying a near penniless intellectual with no formal degree or training, just a bunch of ideas he'd cooked up from reading a ton. But Anna was 31, and apparently her parents figured better a marriage beneath her than life as a spinster but their consent was reluctant, to say the least. Here again, there's a story which may or may not be accurate, that Anna was only allowed her clothing and a piano as dowry, and that her parents refused to attend the wedding. It fell to Anna to do most of the caretaking for the 37 children her husband had taken it upon himself to try and educate at the farm, and as his plans drove him and his wife deeper and deeper into debt, apparently Pestalozzi took much of Anna's family finances down the drain with him. Anna had one child, Hans Jakob, and lest you think Pestalozzi catches any breaks in the story, Anna's health took a downward spin from which she never really recovered, and their son suffered his whole life from epilepsy. But the upshot of being dead broke and jobless, I guess, is that it gives you a lot of time to write. So Pestalozzi spent the next 18 years writing like crazy. Essays, treatises, a six-book fiction series, poetry, children's fables, you name it. And some of his ideas about education finally reached the ears of Switzerland's Minister of Arts and Sciences, who appointed him to run an educational institution for war orphans in the town of Stans. And by all accounts, this institution was incredibly successful in meeting the educational and emotional needs of the kids. At last, Pestalozzi had found his place. Just kidding, this is Pestalozzi we're talking about. The French army invaded a year later and forcibly requisitioned the convent he was operating the school out of, so back to square one. I could go on and on, but it's pretty much the same pattern from here on in, just with different names and places. Pestalozzi convinces officials to let him start a school, he starts it, the kids are doing great, then someone shuts it down. This happens in, please forgive my horrible mispronunciations of the names of these towns, in Bergdorf, in Münchenbukse, in Jeverdlund, he just never gets there. This despite the fact that his ideas about education are starting to gain fans as far away as Paris. Fans who can most likely pronounce the names of these Swiss cities far better than I can. So what were Pestalozzi's ideas that were now catching fire? One big idea is that you need to break down complex ideas into their component elements in order for kids to really learn them. This is today what teachers call the process of scaffolding, or at least one way in which you can scaffold. Additionally, Pestalozzi was a pioneer of what we now call student-centered learning, practicing differentiation of instruction long before Carol Tomlinson and recognizing multiple intelligences, or something like it, long before Howard Gardner. If these names don't mean anything to you, don't worry. I talk about them in other episodes. The key takeaway is that Pestalozzi rejects the notion of one-size-fits-all schooling and puts no small burden on the teacher to adapt instruction to meet student needs and preferences. He also came up with some major precepts of bilingual education, namely that students learn second languages better when allowed to transition back and forth between their mother tongue. You want more? He also pretty much came up with the idea for physical education as a part of formal schooling. So you can thank Pestalozzi for inventing recess, and maybe forgive him for creating gym class. I don't think he ever envisioned dodgeball as a part of best practices. You want even more? Fine, one of his interns, Frederick Froebel goes on to invent kindergarten. Face facts, school as we know it owes a tremendous amount to this hard-luck Swiss guy named Pestalozzi who never let go of his idealism and his desire to help kids despite life kicking him in the teeth every time he tried it. Purportedly, he was such a nice guy that when he died of some unspecified illness in 1827, his last words were, I forgive my enemies. May they now find peace, to which I am going forever. The inscription on Pestalozzi's gravestone calls him the, and I quote, Savior of the poor of Nuoff, preacher to the people in Leonard and Gertrude, in Stans, father of the orphan, in Bergdorf in Munchenbuxi, founder of the new primary education, in Yverdon, educator of humanity. He was an individual, a Christian, and a citizen. He did everything for others and nothing for himself. Bless his name. So, after an agonized struggle of a life where he saw his ideals get smashed time and again, at least the man got a nice epitaph. Fifty years later, and a few hundred miles away in Italy, someone else forwarded many of the same ideas as Pestalozzi, did them one better, faced persecution on both a personal and philosophical level, and perhaps had more lasting success in the end. That someone was Maria Montessori. You've probably heard of Montessori schools, and maybe you know about their highly hands-on, student-directed approach to learning. Let's explore the life of the woman who started all of that, and a lot more. Maria Tecla Artemisia Montessori was born on August 31st, 1870, in Chiaravalli, a small town in Italy of only about 14,000 people, though her teachers apparently classified her as unremarkable. From an early age, Maria had an avid interest in intellectual pursuits. That wasn't all too surprising. Her uncle was a famous paleontologist, and her mother, while a housewife, had a robust education of her own. It was she who encouraged her daughter's curiosity, while Maria's father was, shall we say, less enthusiastic. Especially when at age 14, after the family moved to the big city of Rome, Maria enrolled in an all-boys technical school with the hopes of becoming an engineer. This was not something a girl was supposed to do. Hope you can hear the capital letters in my voice. Maria's father, a civil servant, was embarrassed about his daughter's ambitions. But he shouldn't have fared. She soon abandoned engineering, because she had decided she wanted to be a doctor. Montessori sought to apply to medical school at the University of Rome, which her father strictly opposed. She appealed instead to one Guido Baccelli, a professor at the university, and he told her she was out of her mind to think such a thing. Maria applied anyway, although the university forbid her because of her gender from enrolling in the medical course of study. Instead, she studied just about everything else. And I mean everything else. By the end of her undergraduate years, she wound up passing examinations in botany, zoology, experimental physics, histology, that's apparently the study of connective tissue. Yeah, I guess that's totally a thing. Anatomy, general and organic chemistry. And she earned a diploma de licenza that qualified her to study medicine. The university was stunned and accepted her into the medical school program. No, are you kidding? They said, sorry, you're a woman, women can't be doctors. Montessori, undeterred, went over their heads. About as far over as you could go, she wrote to the Pope. I guess the Holy Father was impressed because Pope Leo XIII wrote her a personal recommendation and, hey, when the person you believe is God's chief representative on earth writes someone a letter of reference, you shut up about your sexist notions and admit her. To any high school juniors or seniors who might be listening, I cannot guarantee that a recommendation from the Pope will get you into the college of your dreams, but it probably couldn't hurt. Thus it was that finally, in 1893, at the age of 23, Maria Montessori began her course of study in medical school. Her trials didn't end there, though. In addition to challenging coursework, Maria had to deal with constant harassment from a lot of the male medical students and professors. Not to mention navigating the bizarre world of double standards for women candidates. For example, she had to perform dissections of cadavers alone, after hours, because apparently a woman was not allowed to be in the same room as a naked body, even if that body was a corpse, but only if men were also present. I've been really trying to wrap my head around this one. I guess it was okay if a lady looked at someone in their birthday suit just as long as there were no peeping Toms about? Were peeping tomasinas apparently okay? Maybe one of my listeners can shed some more light on this, but for now, I'll just move on. Despite nonsense like this, Maria Montessori went on to win an academic prize in her first year of medical school, got an internship as a hospital assistant in pediatrics and psychiatry, and graduated in 1896 with high honors. Her thesis was actually published in an academic journal. Maria's interest in pediatrics was her on-ramp to her interest in education. That interest led her to stick around for another year after graduation, so she could audit the university's courses in pedagogy. Reportedly, she read every single major work on educational theory in the past 200 years, or at least all that were available at the university. This was, by the way, while she was working full-time as an assistant at the psychiatric clinic. A volunteer job because, despite everyone recognizing that she was nothing short of an intellectual rock star who at this point had degrees in practically everything. Hey, she had ovaries, so naturally that meant that she couldn't actually use her medical license or any of that knowledge to practice for paid employment as a doctor. For the next five years, Montessori worked with and researched what at the time were called phrenasthenic children. Nowadays you would say that these kids suffered from cognitive delay or other learning disabilities. These interests went on to work with non-disabled children, particularly when she came to the Casa dei Bambini, or House of Children, in the San Lorenzo neighborhood of Rome in 1907. Even though the Rome subway was 48 years away from being invented, this neighborhood was most definitely the major wrong Every single major work and traps. educational theory in in the orders, years, and I'll quote them the past 2000 years, in that were available at the, the university. The quartiere di San Lorenzo became known as the shame of Italy. People were too afraid to do anything about it. No one knew what happened within those dark walls. There were no small shops for provisions anywhere near. No itinerant vendor would go there to sell. Even the lowest laborer or the poorest fisherman would seem as princes in comparison, for however poor, they would have at least some honest livelihood, whereas those who lived inside that gloom had no work, no means to pay. Their only livelihood was derived from crime. The problem of clearing this pit of inhumanity demanded a solution. Now Montessori is, of course, being bitingly sarcastic there at the end, and continues to be as she goes on, quote, The district, due to its ill repute, would of course never become a fashionable quarter, and therefore only small renovations are necessary to render it habitable for these people already so unfortunate. It was estimated that in this area lived at least 10,000 people. Therefore, how could they discriminate which among them would be the best? They chose the married ones, who, by reason of their relation with one another, would be the most human. So, in other words, the authorities of the day would only render aid, and not very much of it at that, to married people. And with married people came children. About fifty, to begin with, were a part of that group targeted for assistance, and these children were considered a problem. Again, I'll quote Montessori herself Wild and uncivilized they were, they presented a serious problem of damage to the houses. Left alone while their parents went to work, they were free to carry out any wild fancy. So the director of the concern decided that the only obvious thing to keep them out of mischief was to collect all the children and confine them. One room was set aside for this purpose, resembling in every way a children's prison. It was hoped that a person would be found with enough social courage to tackle this problem. End quote. That person, of course, turned out to be Maria Montessori. She was employed as a medical officer in charge of hygiene, and indeed saw to it that proper sanitation was observed. But shockingly, it turned out that children needed more than just hygiene to thrive. One last time in Montessori's words, because frankly, she's a really good writer. Quote, although society had embraced the ideal of improving the condition of these unfortunate people, the children had been forgotten. There were no toys, no school, no teacher. There was nothing for them. When the children, ranging between the ages of two to six, entered, they were dressed all alike in some thick, heavy blue drill. They were frightened and, being hindered by the stiff material, could move neither arms nor legs freely. Apart from their own community, they had never seen any people. To get them to move together, they were made to hold hands. The first unwilling child was pulled, thus dragging along the whole line of the rest. All of them were crying miserably. The sympathy of the society ladies was aroused, and they expressed the hope that in a few months, they would improve." End quote. So yeah, that's some tough stuff to read, especially if you have children of your own. Montessori didn't just condemn the society ladies for their ineffectiveness. She decided to do something to help those children herself. Describing herself as becoming inflamed, Montessori decided to turn what was essentially a homeless shelter into a functioning school. But how should she approach teaching these children of poverty? most if not all of whom had never been inducted into the highly structured mechanisms of formal education. They didn't, to use the modern parlance, know how to do school, nor did they have much motivation to learn. So rather than the traditional approach of trying to force children to fit school's mold, Montessori decided to do the opposite. It's not that these children didn't know how to learn, she said, they learned all sorts of things every day to survive on the streets. Instead of positioning herself as the teacher, Montessori decided instead to study the children and to learn from them. What did their spontaneous activity reveal about how they developed? Instead of creating structures for their education, Montessori thought instead of how she could remove obstacles to what she saw as their natural learning. What little furniture was installed in the house was designed for adult proportions, so Montessori ordered child-sized furniture for her developing school. She provided that school with all sorts of everyday objects for use in cleaning or building things. Montessori set up all sorts of stations, gave kids opportunities to discover things through the act of playing with and using these materials, and she gave them free rein to do so. The kids designed the activities at their own pace based on whatever curiosity drove them, and as they did, Montessori observed them carefully and wrote copious notes. Among the things she learned, children, even these supposed wild children, could concentrate very intently on the things that interested them. They repeated activities they wanted to master until they did so, provided they found it interesting. Contrary to the image of these kids as rowdy and undisciplined, she saw they had a very strong tendency to order their own environment, straightening tables and shelves and putting the materials in certain configurations. As children chose some activities over others, Montessori refined the materials that she offered to them. And although this might sound least believable of all to teacher listeners struggling with classroom management, Montessori saw that the students developed what she called spontaneous discipline, managing their own behavior. From these and other observations arose the educational method that Montessori developed, although she would be the first person to tell you that she wasn't the one who developed it. Quoting from her again, My educational method has grown from these as well as many other revelations given to me by the children. It has nothing to do with any educational method of the past, nor with any educational method of the future it stands alone as the contribution of the child himself. It cannot have come from an adult person. The thought, the very principle, that the adult should stand aside to make room for the child could never have come from an adult. End quote. Whether she agreed to take credit or not, Montessori codified these learnings into what would become known as the Montessori method. In it, the teacher's job is to create prepared learning environments full of objects and situations that would let students use their senses to creatively explore, and then, The teacher's job was to stand back and, to use the Montessori phrase, follow the child. As seems to be prerequisite for any educational theorist, Montessori developed a stage theory of human development and recommended different teaching approaches that catered to each stage. Never a shrinking violet, Montessori went on to write and lecture all over Italy and the United States, and she won quite a few converts to her method. Unfortunately for her, Montessori's personal life was rockier than her professional one. She apparently had a love affair with a colleague, one Dr. Giuseppe Montesano, but apparently neither of them wanted to marry the other. They had one child together, a son named Mario, who in later interviews said he remembered that he was sent to a wet nurse far off in the country shortly after his birth to keep him a secret. Eventually, his father married someone else. In his youth, Mario's mother would only visit him from time to time, or so he wrote in his autobiography anyway. As he reached adulthood, Mario's mother did induct him into her work, and he went on to advance her methodology and found schools himself. By 1925, more than 1,000 schools were utilizing Montessori's method, and that was in America alone. She had also visited and lectured and inspired the opening of Montessori schools in Spain, the Netherlands, Austria, and England. By the middle of the 20th century, hundreds of additional Montessori schools were established, not only in those countries, but also ones as far away as Denmark, Japan, Indonesia, and New Zealand. But this is an episode about educational thinkers who struggled against great odds, and life was determined to continually throw obstacles at Maria Montessori. Italy came under the fascist rule of Benito Mussolini, and Del Duce himself met with Montessori in 1924. She apparently sold even him on the method, And, certainly more out of survival instinct than belief in fascism, Montessori made the dictator honorary president of the Montessori Society. It wasn't enough. By 1930, Mussolini figured out that a doctor who publicly advocated for freedom, women's rights, and peace activism was probably not someone he wanted around. Montessori and her son Mario were placed under political surveillance, and they had to flee four years later. By 1936, the fascists had shut down all of her Italian Montessori schools. Meanwhile, Maria and Mario Montessori moved around a great deal, eventually settling in the Netherlands, but had to flee again ahead of the Nazi invasion. They ended up next in India, where Montessori's method was also surprisingly popular. But now she faced persecution from the Allies, because she had come from Italy, which was an Axis power at war with India's colonial rulers in England. She and Mario had to register as enemy aliens, and their movements were closely monitored. After the war's end, these restrictions relaxed, and after years of teaching in India, Maria Montessori moved back to Amsterdam, at least as a home base. Mainly, she traveled, lecturing on not just her educational methods, but women's rights and pacifism. Montessori was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize twice, and her face does appear on a postage stamp in India. She died in 1952 in Amsterdam, reportedly in a friend's garden. Today, The North American Montessori Teachers Association estimates that there are about 4,500 Montessori classrooms in the United States, and somewhere around 20,000 more worldwide. The Montessori method, while it never became dominant in American public education, really paved the way for child-centered, constructivist educational methods, which in one way, shape, or form have worked their way into a great many otherwise traditional schools. In an irony that Montessori herself would doubtless not appreciate, her method, designed for the most underprivileged of children, now exists in America mainly as a boutique schooling option for the wealthy. The Montessori method isn't effective for every child, just like any other approach in education, but Maria Montessori would be the first to tell you that one-size-fits-all methodology is not the way to go when working with actual human children. And in the interests of full disclosure, I'm a graduate of a Montessori-based preschool, And I still take with me a lot of what I learned there when I had the freedom to explore whatever I wanted. And freedom is the note I want to end on. Johannes Pestalozzi and Maria Montessori were, in some sense, freedom fighters. They were folks who challenged the mass production method of teaching and learning, and who kept doing so despite obstacle after obstacle, setback after setback. The high regard that we hold them in today really obscures just how hard they had to fight and claw their way against the establishment in their lifetime. But it also serves as a little bit of reassurance for those of us out there feeling like Sisyphus in our classrooms, wondering if we're making any difference at all. One of the best parts about the field of education is knowing that, in spite of opposition and apparent failure, your efforts just might go on to bear fruit, even if it's in a garden that you never live to see. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by ID. Thanks again for listening, and remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Still with us? Great. You get to hear today's educational intriguing fact. In 1999, the nation of Ethiopia introduced a special educational reform plan, and in the wake of this girls' enrollment rate in primary school rose from 40% to 90% by 2008. It's nice evidence that every now and then, big-scale policy reforms really can bring about positive change. That's all for now. Bye!